0: you're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gccugene.org.
1: The late minister, Robert Farrar Capone, said the Reformation was a time when people went blind, staggering trunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace, bottle after bottle of pure, desolate scripture that would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The Bible is a message of God's grace from beginning to end, and the Epistle of Romans is one of those letters that makes the gospel of grace explicitly clear. Drinking 200-proof alcohol would wreck you and could even kill you, Drinking from the fountain of grace we read about in Romans will do the same thing. The 200-proof, pure, free, unfiltered gospel of grace that takes you right where you are will put our life of sin and rebellion to death while bringing forth a new man, unbound, unchained, to live a truly free and transformed life under a perfect king. Martin Luther said, Romans is the chief part of the New Testament and the purest gospel. He said that every Christian should not only know it word for word, by heart, but also that they should occupy themselves with it every day, as the bread of the soul. John Calvin stated about Romans, if we understand this epistle, we have a passage open to us to the understanding of the whole of scripture. Taste and experience the power of God for salvation for all who believe. The 200 proof strength of the gospel in Romans.
0: Good morning. Good to see you guys this morning. My name is Rick, and my title or role here at Gospel Community Church is the preaching pastor. And so if you're visiting with us, it's good to see you. If you don't mind, after the service, coming up and introducing yourself to me, I would love to meet you. Also, if you're visiting and you're here and you're not a Christian, someone investigating the claims of Christianity, we're honored to have you here. We recognize that not everyone in this room probably professes or believes in the message of Christianity, so we thank you for being bold enough to come in and to investigate the claims of Christianity. Also, this is your family. It's good to see you guys. Love you guys. It's good to be with you guys preaching the word this morning. So turn, if you would, to Romans chapter six. We're going to continue in our series in Romans chapter six. Someone leave a note up here? Oh, so (laughs) my stomach just sank. I'm like, no one's ever left me a note. This can't be good. Sydney, these are your notes. Got it. Okay. It's like, leave. (laughs) Our main point this morning is going to be this. Our union frees us to be human. Our union frees us to be human. Specifically speaking, our union with Christ frees us to be human. There's a lot that comes with that statement. So we'll unpack it as we go along. But I would say this, that sin prevents us from being fully human. Sin prevents us from being fully human. And so Christ in our union with him frees us to be human and one day fully human. And so we're going to unpack that this morning. First, I want to share a story, a true story, of someone you guys at the end of the story will likely be familiar with. So I'll read it from his perspective. He said, the only godly influence in my life from the time I was the youngest boy and as far back as I can remember was my mother, whom I had for only the first seven years of my life. When she left, my life fell apart, and I was virtually an orphan. My father remarried and sent me to a strict military school where the severity of discipline almost broke my back. One year later, deciding that I would never enter formal education again, I became a seaman, a princess. By and by, through a process of time, I slowly gave myself over to the devil. And I determined that I would sin to fill my life and I would do it without restraint. I entertained thoughts of suicide on my way to Africa, deciding that that place would be the best place for for me because it's the furthest away from anyone that knew me. And again, I made a pact with the devil to live for him. Somehow through a process of events, I got in touch with the Portuguese slave trader and I lived in his home. His wife, who was brimming with hostility, took a lot out of it on me. She beat me and I ate like a dog on the floor of the home. If I refused to do that, she would whip me with the lash. As time went on, I joined another ship. One time on the ship, I opened up some crates of rum and got everyone on the crew drunk. The skipper, furious with my actions, beat me, threw me down below, and and made me live on stale bread and sour vegetables for an unendurable amount of time. He brought me above to beat me again, and I fell overboard. Again, true story. Because I couldn't swim, he harpooned me to get me back on the ship. And I lived with a scar in my side big enough for me to put a fist into until the day of my death. On board, I was inflamed with fever. There, bruised and confused, bleeding, diseased, I was the epitome of a degenerate man. I remembered the words of my mother. I cried out to God the only way I knew, calling upon his grace and his mercy to deliver me. And upon his son to save me, the only glimmer of light... I would find was in the crack of the ship of the floor above me and I look up to it and screamed out for help. God heard me. This is also a man who said in his own statement, I was a slave to every customary vice. A man who abused the people on board of the ship and a man who also wrote the hymn with the lyrics that start off like this. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found was blind. But now I see It's the story of a man named John Newton. And you see, John Newton was a man who understood that his sin dehumanized him, not only him, but everyone around him. And it led him to a place of despair. The text talks a lot about sin this morning. We're going to talk a lot about sin because we understand this. Sin is a cruel master. And regardless of where you come in this morning, everyone has a worldview. And we have a worldview of what's wrong with the world. The Christian worldview of what's wrong with the world is this, is that there is sin inside of the world. There is sin inside of us and sin is a cruel master and sin dehumanizes us. It, it, it doesn't allow us to live and be fully human. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you that you've spoken through your word. Father, speak to us this morning. Make your glorious gospel so clear this morning. I know there are many in the room this morning that are going through various pain, that are hurting, that are grieving. Comfort them. There are many in the room that are rejoicing. Let them know that we serve a God who rejoices with them. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Illuminate your word to us this morning. Reveal to us what we have either forgotten or what we don't know. Show us your beauty and the beauty of your gospel. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our union frees us to be human. So the first thing that we're going to look at as we read the text is I'm I'm going to highlight things as we dive into the text and read through it. And what we're going to see is the text has a lot to say about sin. Romans 6, starting in verse 1, we're going to read through verse 14 this morning. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who look, died to sin, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ, Jesus were baptized into his death. We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin look there, might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him for the death. He died to sin once and for all, but the life he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, Therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present your mem- uh, yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. Let's start off here. If our union with Christ frees us to be human, we first need to understand what sin is and how sin is anti-human and a cruel master. So there's a lot that this text in this passage unpacks about sin. And a lot of it saying that we're dead to sin and now we're alive to Christ. And so what exactly is sin? Sin at its core nature is selfish rebellion against God. It's looking at God and saying, I understand what you've commanded. I understand what you've said. I understand how you laid things out, but I don't want, I want to do things that way. Instead, I want to be my own God and do things my own way. So, and and what sin is saying is I want to serve myself. I want to be my own God. And so sin is a selfish rebellion against God and sin is a cruel master. What do I mean by that? No one looks at slavery that has happened in the U S and looks at that and says, what a good thing. No one looks at the Holocaust and looks at that and says, what a good thing. We look at those things and we look at the slavery and we look at the cruelty and the masters over these people who treated them as anti human and say, What a horrific thing. Because they had horrible, horrific masters that treated them as though they weren't even human. They might look human, they would say, but they're not. Which is why morality is so important. And which is also why we don't want to say that we get morality from society at large, because that fails. Society had got those two instances wrong. Society at large thought those were good things to be doing. And so we can look at sin and, and, and understand this. Sin is a cruel master. What the text is telling us is this, and Brad preached on this last week. You're either in Adam, which means you're either in sin or you're in Christ. So I'll say this. Everyone in this room has a master. You might not like that, but everyone has a master. Either sin is your master or Christ is your master. And if you say, no, 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 no. Sin is not my master. I'm my own master. I do my own thing. I got my own rules. My number one rule is that there are no rules. That's a rule. You're enslaved to your own rules, proving that you don't have any rules, proving how free you are, proving that you're an autonomous person that comes up with your own set of rules. You're enslaved to that. I lived that way for almost 23 years of my life. And I'll tell you, it wasn't fun. And it wasn't a good master. Here's how we can tell that we we struggle with sin. Here's how we can tell that things have mastery over our lives. I'll I'll give you three tests. What makes you angry? What makes you fearful? And what makes you sad? Look at this for me real quick. Verse 12 says this. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your moral body to make you obey its passions. The Greek word there for passions is thumia. But it has a prefix here. It's actually epithumia. And the prefix epi means over. So it's desire, but not just any desire. It's this over-desire. And I would say that all sin starts off and then continues to grow. I've used the analogy before of a snowball. Sin builds momentum. It grows and grows and grows until its path of destruction gets bigger. Or it's like water. It starts off warm, and then it starts to boil, and then it boils and boils and boils. We see this even throughout the Old Testament. Look at stories like in 2 Samuel uh, 13. We see this man who so longs to have this woman... That, that, that he explains that I have this over-desire for her, that he, he just can't stop himself, that, that he wants her so bad. And that desire leads him to rape the woman. Horrific story. What we see is that our, our epi-passions, our over-passions are the thing that we start to worship. They're the things that we give our time, our resources, and our energy to. They're the very things that are enslaving us. What are the things in your life that make you angry? The things, whenever they happen, that they make you angry. I don't like when people flip me off driving. makes me angry. But when my wife points out a flaw in me, it makes me epi-angry. Over. Why? Because I worship my own righteousness and my own image and the way that I look. And it's almost as though she's attacking something. And so my inner lawyer rises up to give a defense on why I would do the things I do. Why? Because I worship myself. What are the things in your life that can make you angry? But if they're taken from you, if someone messes it with them, if you don't get the promotion, if you don't get the job, whatever it is, what are those things that can make you happy angry? What are the things in your life that can also make you fearful? What do you worry about? What do you try to maintain control over? So much so that if these things lose control or things don't go the way that you're hoping that they would go and, and, and life is unraveling, that you become epi-fearful, over-fearful. I don't know how life is going to work, is how, how, how this is going to function because this is the plan I had for my life. These are the ideologies. This is what I thought my marriage would look like. And things are falling apart. They're going and spiraling out of control. What do I do? They make me epi-fearful. What about the things that make you sad? Sadness is a normal part of human life. You lose a relationship, you become sad. You lose a loved one, you can become sad. When you lose a God and the person that was laying in the casket or the person that broke up with you was your God, you become epi-sad. Because it's not just someone who died, it's your God who died. The very person that you worshipped their existence, that was going to give you worth, that was going to give you meaning, died. Those very things are things that we have passions about. Those very things are the things that can very much enslave us. They're not always in that and that's the problem. When we think about sin, we think about carnal sin. But when we think about sin, what we need to think about the very good things that God created that are dehumanizing us because we have made those good things that God created into things that are now our little gods that we're worshipping and wrapping our existence around. And I would say that's where sin is a cruel master. It's not a good master. Your your job is not going to die for you. Your job is not going to be there for you. When you fail, Christ will. You see, there's this beautiful story in the Gospel of John. Jesus reaches down, interacting with the blind man, and he takes mud. He takes mud, and then he also takes spit, which, as we look at it, it just looks really gross, in my opinion, okay? So he makes this little mud spit thing, and he puts it on the guy's eyes. And in two stages, the guy can see. The blind man can see. What is Jesus doing there? He does this in many other miracles. But we need to see this. Jesus interrupts the natural order with the supernatural. He does miracles. But what he's actually doing is putting things back to their natural way that God intended. You see, human beings were created to live in perfect unity with God, to have a relationship with God, not to worship other things, but to worship God. So we were meant to have this relationship with God. What sin did is when sin entered the world in Genesis 3 is now we have other things that become our God things that we're wrapping our existence around, that we're hanging on to. And we start worshiping those things. And then those things start declaring mastery over us. That is a very dehumanizing thing. It's not the way that God intended for humans to be. God intended for us to be with him, loved by him, worshiping him, and all all these things that we are now enslaved to. And so what Jesus was doing is when he was taking the dust from the earth is he was actually showing something so amazing. He was saying, remember how it created humanity from dust. Your creator's back and he's restoring things to the way they're supposed to be. Putting things back to the way the natural order is supposed to go to what what it's going to look like to a world without sin. And one day Christ will return and that's what things will be like. So sin keeps us from being human. It's anti-human. It's a cruel master. Let me ask you this question too. Where are your time, energy, and resources tied up? Because there you might find what you're enslaved to. It's not like this hard mystery where we go, man, I don't know how to figure it out. Look at where you spend your time. Look at what you think about. Look at where your resources and your money and those types of things go. And you can see this thing. For some of you, the thing that you're enslaved to is your job. And so the very thing that's sacrificed is your family for the sake of you laying down your career on the altar that you worship. For some of you and wives in the room, it's kids and it's family. It's taking very good things and making them God things. Those are very, that's a very anti-human process because it's not allowing us to live fully and freely into who we are as God intended us to be. I'll say this until we, until we, and society starts to take sin seriously, we'll have a major problem. Because we will always look to something out in the world that's wrong. And we'll never look to inside and say, maybe something in here is wrong. I love, there's a brilliant American theologian named Cornelius Platinga. Plantica is actually how you pronounce it, but it looks like Platinga. He says this about sin. For the Christian church, to ignore, euthanize, or otherwise mute the lethal reality of sin is to cut the nerve of the gospel. For the sober truth is that without the full disclosure on sin, the gospel of grace becomes impertinent, unnecessary, and finally, uninteresting. The reason why Paul has so much to say about sin in this passage, the reason why Paul's unpacking this, is because he wants us, just like consistent with Christ, to live fully and freely. Christ said that I came, that you would have life and have abundant life. In John 15, Christ unpacks his love for his people. And then he says, hey, I've told you all this, and I've told you my command so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. Sin comes through to rob the joy that Christ has set before us by not allowing us to live fully human, loved by God, loving God, and loving others around us. What, all, what else is Paul addressing here? He's addressing an argument called antinomianism. And what antinomianism is, is it's this thought that now, since I'm saved by grace, Paul's being logical. Okay, so there's all this, I'm saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, I'm justified, I'm declared righteous, nothing can make me unrighteous in the sight of God. True, all true. So Paul goes, here's what you're going to say. Here's what you're going to think. And Paul's already been charged with this. You're you this. You're going to say, well, then grace is then a license for me to sin. Look at what verse one says. What what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? In other words, why don't we just keep sinning? If sinning gives the chance for God to show off his grace and brings glory to him, let's do it. And he says, by no means. And and his argument from here is to say, how can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. So if union frees us to be human and sin is this cruel master, then what do we need? We need the gospel. We need the good news. What we need is we need a heart that is rescued. We need to be rescued. If me saying that we are sinners offends you, didn't know that me saying that there's no way you can save yourself and make yourself righteous in the sight of God apart from Christ, that is going to avenge you too. So our, our response to recognizing that sin is a cruel master and that sin doesn't allow us to be fully human is to look at our union with Christ. I would say the most beautiful doctrine, in my opinion, is the doctrine of our union with Jesus Christ. And what I mean by that is when we are saved, when we look at Christ's obedient life on this earth, his death on the cross on our behalf, his resurrection, and we place our trust and our faith in him, we are legally declared by God righteous, innocent, flawless, and perfect. But in that moment, what happens is we are united to Christ. We become one with him. That's the language that is used here. Don't you know that all of us who have, who have died in sin no longer live in it? We have been baptized with Christ. We are united with him. That that word united means that we are made one with. We are identified with Christ. Why does Paul pack unpack baptism here? I'm not gonna say a ton about this, but but here's what I'll say: Baptism here, the word means immersion. A few things. Paul is saying, hey, remember your conversion. Remember how you were converted to Christ. That's when you were united. The old you died. Knew new you came to life. And so he's talking about our conversion as an event. And if you read the book of Acts, you'll see the event that happens. There's repentance, there's faith, there's baptism, and there's an indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Those things happen right after one another. In other words, there's not like a lag time. These events happen whenever a person is saved. But here's why it has a ton of significance. There are many people in today's culture that will say, "Hey, I love that person and I married to that person in my heart." We have a love in our heart. What baptism is is it's an actual public proclamation, much like, much like a wedding ceremony. When you, when, you, when you have a wedding ceremony, what you have are witnesses that are there to say, "We are witnessing your covenant you're making a day, and we're holding you accountable to that covenant, to live consistent to that covenant. What baptism is, it's a ceremony saying, "I'm pledging myself to Christ." I'm being welcomed into his family. And I'm being united to him and united to one another. And I want these other people to hold me accountable to that. And I would say an adult only can do that. So I would say uh, uh, baptism, as we see it here, linked to conversion is for adults. But it's this coming out, so to speak, of you saying, I'm with Christ. Why is that hard for them in the first century? It's a straw that broke the camel's back for many of them. For them to get baptized is the last thing to say, now I have brought complete shame to my family. Now I am disowned by my family. Now I have completely aligned myself with the teachings of this Jesus Christ and the gospel and this new family. And now I'm disowned. And what it's saying is now I recognize, which is a hard thing, I have a new family. I'm in Christ with a new family, with my eternal family. And that's the celebration of what's happening here. There's this union that our baptism shows that we become one with Christ. Look at Jesus. He was baptized at the beginning of his ministry. Well, let me ask you this. It's a rhetorical question. Please don't answer Why was Jesus baptized? Someone asked you that. Why was Jesus baptized? At the beginning of his ministry, Jesus was identifying with us. And what I mean by that is he was saying, look, at the end of my ministry, at the end of three years, I'm identifying myself with you. He's a perfect man. The only one who doesn't need to be baptized. He goes in the water because what he's saying is this. I'm going to identify myself with you at the end of my life. I'm going to become a sinner on the cross. I'm going to become what you are and identify myself with you so that you can become what I am and and identify yourself with me, sinless. So baptism is a picture of. Verse five, for if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that, we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. For we know that Christ being raised from the dead will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. L- look at the language used here. That united with is identified with. Please hear this. What this means is this, is what is, what is legally true of Jesus becomes, or, or what is true of Jesus becomes legally true of you in God's eyes. When we become united with Christ, when we place our trust and faith in his obedient life, death, and resurrection, when all of that happens, we become one with Christ. So it's as if this it's as if on the cross, Jesus was becoming an addict, Jesus was becoming a liar, a gossiper, and a thief. He took all of that, all of our sin upon himself. He was crucified. And that's why the language here, and even as Sidney was reading, we, the, the language of the Bible is that we are crucified with him. It's as if our, we were there, and then he goes into the grave. It's as if we went into the grave dying with him, our old selves being put to death. And when he raised, we are raised as new creatures, as new life, which, which, which means this, now we're identified with what was legally true of him. We've never gossiped. We've never sinned. We've never lied. We've never lusted. We've never been an addict because he made that legally true of us in our union with him. Tell me union's not important. And maybe one of the major themes of the New Testament, it appears our being united with Christ over 200 times in the New Testament. I think our New Testament authors are trying to drive a point home. We are united with Christ. And our union frees us to be human. Why? Because it gives us a new heart and it gives us a new master. A master who doesn't want to bring cruelty to our lives. A master who doesn't want to enslave us for cruel purposes, but a master who wants to bring joy and abundant life into our lives. Our union frees us to be human because only in Christ are we restored back to the place that we are created to be in right relationship with the father. And only in Christ can we now exercise the freedom to say no to sin, to say no to sin. You see in Christ, we're delivered from the penalty of sin. We're delivered from the punishment of sin we're delivered from the power of sin. It's full-fledged power of our life. It no longer has that. So we get to actually live out what it is to be human. Sin no longer controls our lives. The very thing that Christ came to deliver us from no longer has to have reign and dominion and control over us so we can actually be free to be human. Loved by God, loving God, not controlled by sin. Our union with Christ frees us to be human. Let me ask you another question. Do you take sin seriously? I was watching this movie years ago. I don't know if it's appropriate. I was a brand new Christian. Can't even remember all the details of the movie. But it's called like Trope Elite. It's a, it's a movie based upon one of the most elite police forces in the world down in Brazil, specifically in Rio de Janeiro. There are police forces called BAPE. They're, they're one of the most elite because there is such corruption within the police force there. That the police officers themselves are corrupt. And so this group called Boppe actually comes in, and what they're doing is they're going after the corrupt police officers. The training these guys go through, I've seen the Navy SEAL stuff, it looks intense. Some of this stuff is intense, so much so. It's based on a true story. One time the guy was falling asleep after their sleepless night, so their instructor goes over, pulls a pin out of a grenade, and he hands it to one of the guys in, in the middle of the group and says, Hold this. The guy never dozed off again. Literally a live grenade, he placed in this, in this guy's hands in the center of this group, and he knew that if he fell asleep again, Boom. Until we start to view sin in our lives as us actually handling and playing with a live grenade that doesn't just destroy us, but other people around us, I'm not going to take it serious. You see, grace doesn't save us, and the gospel doesn't save us to just go and live at what one time was a cruel master. It it, it, It frees us so that that is no longer our cruel master. Until we see and understand the destruction of sin, we will be tempted to give our lives to it. And time and time again, what we will see is sin and idolatry leads to emptiness. Sin and idolatry lead to emptiness. Why? Because it's a cruel master that robs us from being fully human, being united to Christ and living for him. That's why our union with Christ is the only thing that can free us to be fully human. So here's your question. speculating. I still sin. I still sin. What do I do with that? Let me start here. Please hear this. If you've put your trust and faith in Jesus Christ, you are united to him. Sin is never going to be enjoyable for you again. Why? Think, think of the sweetest lady you know, like, like just like that lady who's very pure and just like you would never like say poop around her or whatever your next word is around here. It's just that, 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 that lady, okay? So picture that lady. Would you ever take her to a kegger or to a rave? If you don't know what that is, don't look it up. It's a party that you just shouldn't go to, okay? You, you, you wouldn't because you would say, my goodness, you would be uncomfortable. And sin, whenever we take, whenever we live in sin, what we're doing is uniting Christ who lives within us to that sin. And so it no longer becomes enjoyable for us. And I would say the fact that sin is no longer enjoyable, that's a good sign. That's a sign of evidence that the spirit of God is living within you. Next, I would say you first need to change some of your language. I hear many Christians all the time that are like, I'm just a dirty, rotten sinner, man. That's who I am. How offensive to the radiant beauty that Christ arrayed you with. You are a saint who's holy and blameless, righteous in the sight of God, who struggles with sin. You are not a dirty, rotten sinner who is struggling to become a saint. Change your language. Beautiful, radiant, still struggling. Yes, the key word there? Struggling, sin is a struggle in my life. It's an exhausting struggle, but it's a good sign when we have a wrestle against in our life. A Christian life should be a life that's lived out of repentance. We're turning from our sin and we're turning to Christ. Struggle is a good thing. Keep struggling. Don't struggle alone. Struggle with other Christians. I love the story of Augustine. Augustine, if you have not read much about him, he had a very sexual perverse past. He was a womanizer an adulterer, and then one day he was walking down the street. True story. And a prostitute screamed out to him, Augustine, Augustine. He just kept walking. Augustine, Augustine. He kept walking, nothing. So finally she runs up to him and and she (laughs) says, Augustine, it is I. And he looks and turns around and says, I know, but it is no longer I. Why? Because God's grace has saved him, made him a new creature, Gave him a new identity. He was one with Christ, and he was no longer the same man who was going to live the same way. When we sin, we just fail to believe what's true for us. We've been, we've been purchased by the wealthiest master, who's a good master, who's provided us with all the resources. It, it, it's almost as if someone adopted a child, brought them into a mansion with just a plethora of resources, and the next day you find that or, or that, that child has been adopted at the local homeless shelter we would say, what are you doing? Struggling to believe they've been adopted, struggling to believe that they have all the resources in the world. That's what we do when we sin. We just fail to remember our union with Christ and all that we have available in him. What we actually do is we trust that sin is gonna be a better master and it's gonna provide some sort of fulfillment for us, not remembering we are one with Christ and that union actually frees us to be human. God's commands are good, church family. Please hear me saying that. You look at the laws of nature, you look at gravity, you're like, good. Jumping off a cliff, well, not going to be a good idea because of the laws of gravity. When you look at God's laws as how it relates to our life with him and our life with others, good. The same good God who purchased you, who gave his son to rescue you, who empowered you with the spirit is the same God who gives you those commands. And he says, my love is not even contingent upon you obeying those commands. My love is contingent upon my son who obeyed those commands for you. But now you're free. To obey them. That's why he ends, even in verse 14. He says, for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Remember? You're not under the law. You're under grace, but grace only reminds you that you're no longer a slave. You're actually human. We're getting a glimpse on this earth right now of what it's going to look like to be fully human. When Christ returns, and it talks about that, we still have the presence of sin now. Why? Because the resurrection hasn't happened. Christ hasn't returned. When he does, we're going to be fully delivered from the presence of sin too. And then we're going to be fully human with Christ, with no sin, no cancer, no death, no mar- miscarriages, no suffering, no sadness, no sickness. None of those things are going to exist. We're going to be fully human because of our union with Christ here on this earth. Scripture says, hey, you're, you're, you're so much one with him. It's as if you've been crucified with him. Th- those sins that once to find you, they don't. They're in the grave. Leave them there. And as Christ rose victorious, his victory is your victory. You can say, has Christ, was Christ successful over every sin in his life? Yes, that belongs to you. That's how God sees you. Scripture also says in Ephesians 2, you've been raised with him and seated at the right hand of the heavenly places." It says that right now to the church in Ephesus, you've been seated at the right hand. You've been raised with him. They're like, but we're here. But it's such a reality. Your union is such a reality that you're so much there that it's so secure in who you are in Christ. Do You get to live with part of that reality now. So I would say this, our union frees us to be human, but stay in the word, stay in prayer and stay in community. Stay in the word, pick up this book daily. Stay in prayer and stay in community because our communion is how we actually get to live with and, and live out our union with Christ. We get to enjoy a friendship with our creator. Let me give us some real practical steps. I'm going to call it our nutrition and exercise plan. Look at verse 11. So you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider is a verb. Consider yourself this way. Christians, consider yourself dead to sin and alive in Christ Jesus. That is a thought-provoking exercise. What you need to do is meditate on that. But you also need to think about your brothers and sisters in Christ as dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. When you see your brother and sister in sin, you don't just go up and say, stop sinning. You go up and you recognize that's not who they are. They're living like that orphan. They're living like that person that's forgotten. You say, you've been purchased. You're innocent, holy, blameless, and spotless. Start living like that because that's how you're going to have joy. So we start considering. We consider who we are and whose we are. There's a thought-provoking exercise. We go back to our union constantly thinking about that union and the beauty of it, and it drives us. Three things whenever we talk about sin and idolatry, people are like, oh, that just sucks. I struggle with comfort or I struggle with control or I struggle with this or I struggle with that. Here's the thing. Our approach to sin and idolatry should be starving it. We're feeding something with the way we live. We need to starve it. Maybe we have muscles that are underdeveloped and we need to grow some of those muscles. And so here's what you can do. Ronnie, who used to be one of our elders here, said that every time that he was tempted to lust and every time he was tempted to look at images or do anything like that, he had a routine he would do. He would first serve his bride, his wife, and he would do things for her. Next, he would start texting people and saying, how can I pray for you? What do you need from me? You see, if sin turns us inward and selfish, what, our, what we need to do is consider others and turn ourselves outward. Who can you text right now before you walk out of this room who's not here today, not to guilt them, not to bring shame to them, but just say, we missed you today. I want, to know, I want you to know that your presence was missed. That's again, that's us turning outward. Who can you encourage every day this week? R- write down seven people for every day that's coming this week. That's going to turn you away from you, from serving yourself to serving someone else. Who can you encourage this week? Daily, send out a text to encourage someone, to pray for someone. What areas can you start serving this family today? Week after week, we can say, hey, our, our, our church family has areas that we need people to step up and serve in. Let me be very honest with you. In the history of being a pastor, the one thing I've noticed with every affair that I've walked with, with people, it is true of this. Either the man or the woman had no investment into their local church, financially or in service. And so what, what was that an indicator of? If I'm not serving in this area, I'm probably just inward focus and I'm self-consuming somewhere else therefore our muscles of feed myself, feed myself, feed, feed myself and all of my idols. Well, I'll say it this way. We start to starve our sin and our idolatry by actually starting to serve other people. We actually help our muscles grow and develop in the areas they need to be grown and developed. Maybe signing up for women's retreat is so uncomfortable for you. Let me ask you this. Will you continue to go through life doing everything that's comfortable for you? Or you say, maybe this is a muscle that needs to be developed and I should grow in? I'm never going to go to gospel community. It makes me so uncomfortable. Maybe that's a muscle that needs to be grown and developed. Or you can continue to do what you're doing, living inwardly, but it's going to have an impact on your soul. Jesus didn't lay these things out because he's a bad master. He did them because he's a good master. Let me wrap up here. Our union with Christ frees us to be fully human. What it does is it reminds us who we are and whose we are. What it does is makes us new creatures a new creation with a new spirit that comes to reside inside of us. What it does is it gives us the freedom to say this. No longer is sin my master that I have to say yes to, but now I can exercise the freedom to say no to sin because I have a new and better master. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace. And because of your grace, we are no longer who we once were. We praise you that one day, Christ, you're going to return and make everything that's wrong right. And we praise you that we get to live with a fraction of that reality now. Let us live and live fully and freely. Pray in Jesus' name, amen.